Well, I invite you this morning to turn to the Gospel of Luke, and we'll be in chapter 5, verse 27. Luke chapter 5 and verse 27. You're going to find that on page 861 in the Pew Bible in front of you. If you'd like to use that Bible, we certainly encourage you to do so. In fact, if you don't have a copy of God's Word, we'd love for you to take that Bible as your own. And so Luke chapter 5, verse 27 What a good day it is to be with you and seeking after our Lord as we sought Him in song and offered our praise to Him. And what a great honor it is now to hear from Him through His Word, which He has given us. So Luke chapter 5, verse 27, hear now the Word of God. After this, He went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And He said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And Levi made a great feast in his house, and there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. Our Father, we thank You so much for this time which we can gather here and to celebrate what Christ has done, even as we just sang the work which He accomplished at Calvary for us, the work that He accomplished on that Easter morning conquering death, and the work that He has accomplished in all of our lives who know Him as our Savior and our Lord, our God and King, that He has saved us eternally and brought us into Your family. And now as your children, we come here with hunger in our hearts, a delight in our souls. The great opportunity is to gather, brother and sister, as we hear from our God. We thank you for your word. We want to pause just a moment and thank you that you did not leave us without it, that you have given it to us, that we might know you better and follow you more faithfully. Help us to do so, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. In the 18th century, the Church of England had grown elitist. That is, they began to look down upon the poor and the outcast. So it was in 1739 that the Anglican John Wesley took to the graveyards to preach the gospel. Perhaps Wesley's most famous sermon was a sermon preached to 30,000 people gathered in a graveyard. Many of them, in fact, the majority of them were coal miners. And the accounts tell of Wesley's sermon being delivered in such great power that you could scan the congregation and see that the tears on these hardened coal miners had made white trails down their cold, darkened faces. You see, there was no room for the common man in the Anglican church. And so Wesley reluctantly formed the Methodist church. A hundred years later, the Methodist William Booth wondered why there were no, no poor in the Methodist church. His biographer writes, The Broad Street congregation never forgot that electric, electric Sunday in 1846. The gas jets dancing on the whitewashed walls, the minister, the Reverend Samuel Dunn, seated comfortably on his red plush throne. A concord of voices swelling into the evening's fourth hymn. Foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. 
Then the chapel's outer door suddenly shattered open, engulfing a white scarf of fog. In its wake came a shuffling, shabby contingent of men and women wilting nervously under the stony stares of mill managers and shopkeepers and their well-dressed wives. In the rear, a fire with zeal marched willful Will Booth, blocking the efforts of the more reluctant to turn back. To his dismay, the Reverend Dunn saw that the young Booth was actually ushering his charges, none of whose clothing would have raised five shillings in his own pawn shop, into the very best seats, pew holder seats, facing the pulpit. This was unprecedented for the poor, if they came at all, entered by another door to be segregated on benches without backs or cushions behind a partition which, this, which screened off the pulpit. William Booth soon learned the unpalatable truth that Wesley's Methodism had become respectable. Well, Booth would try this a number of other times until eventually both he and his wife Catherine were kicked out of the Methodist church. He would spend the next 14 years living in poverty before he formed an organization dedicated to sharing and helping the poor, of course, the Salvation Army. And there, William Booth, along with his wife and many others, would seek out to help those whom Christ had come to save. You see, William Booth, along with John Wesley, understood that Jesus came not to save the righteous, but came to save sinners. I think that's what our story tells us that we have here before us, that Jesus is a friend of sinners. In fact, when we just consider what we've already learned from our study of Luke's Gospel, we, we have seen that through Jesus, the demonized have been liberated, the sick have been restored, fishermen have been summoned, the leper has been cleansed, the paralytic has been forgiven, and now, even today, tax collectors and sinners are called and invited. He has an outreach to the outcast. And so if we think that Jesus only is here to save good people like you and I, Well, we don't understand the gospel. He proclaimed even in Nazareth as he began his ministry, the spirit of the Lord is upon me for he has anointed me to proclaim the gospel, the good news to the poor, to proclaim liberty to the captives. Jesus came to this world as a missionary. And he's engaging people as we see, not just preaching at them and certainly not hiding from them, but he is seeking them. He's loving them, challenging them. And we'll see that in this text once again. And I think the challenge before us will be very obvious. What about you? What about me? Are we like Jesus? Do we seek after the lost? Are you a friend of sinners? It's easy just to make friends like you and I, right? It's very comfortable in this company that surrounds us. We enjoy each other. It's easy to, to isolate ourselves from the world, from sinners. Christ will call that behavior into account, into a challenge. As we see, first of all, him calling perhaps one of the worst sinners, this man named Levi. You know, first, as we consider Christ a friend of sinners, that Jesus calls. Jesus calls. Verse 27 reads, After this he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, Follow me. 
You know, Luke begins this narrative by saying, after this. He's referring back to this event that we considered last week when Jesus was in that uh, crowded room and, and the men lowered that paralytic down before him. And Jesus not only healed the paralytic, but he forgave his sin, really stunning everyone in the room. We saw that the Bible tells us they were seized with amazement. They were filled with awe. And it's after this, as Jesus heals this man and he gets up and leaves this, this crowded, packed room that the masses follow him, undoubtedly wondering what's next. What will he do next? Well, if they wanted to be surprised, he does not disappoint them. Because he spots a tax collector sitting at his booth. And in the midst of all these people, he walks up to this man and says to him, follow me. Now, the, the tax collector, Levi, is sitting at a booth in the town of Capernaum. Capernaum, as we, I think, have established already in our study, Luke, is kind of at a crossroads. It's a commercial district, and it's there that Levi would collect his tax. So if you want, went by on this road and you had wares, he would tax you. If you, you went shopping and you came by, Levi would tax you. If you caught some fish and you were hauling your fish to market, there Levi would, would tax you. And so uh, it was certain that Peter and Andrew and James and John, all who Jesus called earlier in John chapter 5, knew Levi. They were all taxed by Levi. There probably was not a good relationship with Levi. I trust they, in fact, they, they hated having to pay this tax. One commentator says it was Levi who taught Peter to swear. Well, I don't know if that's the case, but I trust that they didn't get along well. Right? And, 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 and so he's this tax collector. And pardon me, by the way, if you work for the IRS. I mean no uh, disrespect. But, you know, even in our day, tax collectors are not that highly thought of. Well, well in this day... Well, if they're not highly thought of today, they were, they were despised. See, a tax collector not only collected tax that you may not want to give, he was a traitor. You see, a tax collector was a Jew who went to work for the Roman occupiers. And he, he sold out his own people to the occupiers in order to line his own pockets. Now, he wasn't paid a salary like you and I might be paid. He actually um, was... a told to collect a certain amount of tax and he would give that tax off to Rome and then anything above that tax he kept for himself. And so they soon, um, as ancient accounts tell us, they became, soon became like the mafia. They had goonies and thugs and they would force people to pay and, and they would threaten you if you, you didn't. And, and, and they, they were like these uh, rich, traitorous uh, thieves. And I think the only common parallel that we can have is you think about what's going on in the Middle East with ISIS ravaging Iraq and, and, and Syria. It would be like if ISIS came and, and occupied a Syrian town and, and an individual happened to live there and, and, and this person went to work for ISIS in order to take money from his own people to, to line his own pockets. So we, would, we would think this person is a despicable individual. He, the tax collectors were, were despised. They were immediately kicked out of the synagogue. The Jewish Talmud defines who goes to hell as thieves, murderers, and tax collectors. We know according to the Jewish faith, it was a sin to lie unless you were lying to a tax collector. And it was in that case that it was not a sin to lie to them. They would actually excuse you in advance. These were terrible, terrible people. Levi is a terrible man. And you stay away from him, don't you? Everyone stays away from him. They definitely don't approach him. Except that's exactly what Jesus does. Luke says he saw a tax collector. 
I only mention that because that word saw is not the typical word for saw, not to bore you too much, but it literally means a careful and deliberate um, vision, which try analyzing what it is you're looking at. And so I, I, I almost imagine Jesus just kind of staring at Levi just for a moment, looking him up and down. Levi must have been thinking, what in the world does this rabbi want? Why is he looking at me? Well, he went wonderful long for Jesus approached him and said, follow me. Which I think raises the question, why in the world is Jesus calling Levi? I mean, of all the people, why, why would he pick him? I mean, if you were building the kingdom of God, who are you going to call? It probably would not be people like this. And yet he comes, he picks Levi. It's absolutely crazy. No one ever picks Levi. And in fact, he's collecting these four fishermen, and now he collects Levi, who they uh, uh, hate each other. There's going to be conflict there amongst this new church, right? This new religious movement. And, and Jesus is deliberately bringing this together, raising the question, what in the world is he doing? Why? Well, I'm left only to conclude that Jesus loves to give grace. He loves to be merciful. He loves to change lives. I mean, isn't Levi the gracious choice? He's not choosing Levi because of all his goodness. Levi is the most gracious choice. God loves to give mercy. God loves to redeem. God loves to give grace. And choosing Levi is a picture of grace. Of of all the people in Capernaum, he was the last person you would think would join this movement. And yet God chooses him. Not because he's special. Maybe you think, God chose me, I must be special. Well, you may be special, but perhaps not in the way you think. He chose Levi not because he's special. He chose Levi because Levi needed mercy. He calls to himself what the world despises. He calls to himself what no one else wants. It's almost as if I think Jesus is able to see not simply what we are, but what we may become through his grace. How he might transform us. He sees what no one else sees. You, of course, know, uh, though Luke calls him Levi, we know him by his more popular name, Matthew. And everyone else sees Levi, the tax collector, almost as if Jesus sees Matthew, the disciple. Matthew, the evangelist. Matthew, the apostle. Matthew, the author of scripture. In fact, the name Matthew means gift from God. And there's this thief that because of God's grace, because of Jesus Christ, is going to become God's gift to the world because of his radical power of mercy. Has he done that in your life, I wonder? Christian, have you not experienced the transforming power of God's grace in your life? How he took you from one place and brought you someplace that you never dreamed that you might be? I know many of you have. I once knew a 16-year-old fornicating, drug-using, foul-mouthed, borderline high school dropout. And if you would have walked up to this kid and said, one day you'll go to seminary and become a pastor, he would have laughed in your face. You, If you would have told him, one day you're going to be preaching Jesus, he would have said, who's Jesus? And yet God got a hold of him and transformed him and made him something radically different then he would have been on his own accord. This is what God's grace does. This is why Jesus chooses sinful people. He transforms them. Everyone else sees flaws. Everybody else sees ruin and and outcasts. And Christ says, I'm going to make you something wonderful by my grace. There once was a a marble stone dragged in before the chapel in uh, Florence about 500 years ago. And this, this stone was to be carved into the statue of an Old Testament prophet. 
And yet when the great sculptor Donatello analyzed the block, he concluded there are too many flaws. It's not worth my time. And so there it stood, just a massive block of marble before this cathedral in Florence for many years until another man came up and analyzed it and came to a different conclusion. This man worked on that block for two years. And it was on January 25th in 1504 that the assembled crowd came to see what the rejected block had become. The veil dropped and all of the massive people erupted in praise as they beheld Michelangelo's David. One of the greatest works of art ever that man has created. He reminds me of Jesus. I think Jesus has an artist's eye, doesn't he? No matter how ugly our life has been, he can make something beautiful by his grace. That's why he calls Levi, isn't it? It's why he chooses him. It's why he beckoned him to himself. I wonder if God has ever called you. Has God called you? Has God called you to follow him? If you're a Christian, he has, of course. You know Romans 8, 28? Many of you have memorized, don't you? For God works all things together for those who love him, who are what? We'll finish the verse. Who are called according to his purpose. He's called us. And we see Levi's call is very dramatic, just like Peter's call. But not everyone's is dramatic, right? Nicodemus' call was forceful. The Samaritan woman's call was slow, patient, and gentle. The man born blind, his call took a number of meetings. Some people's call is intellectual. Other people's call is emotional. Some people are called suddenly. Some people are called slowly. Some people walk an aisle. Some people answer at home. But all Christians have this in common, that God has called us to himself. Right, You know how you know you're being called? You get a sense, don't you, that you're being pursued. Right, God is coming after you. You have a sense that he's working on you. Christianity is not something that you just take up. It's something that comes and takes hold of you. And he grabs you and beckons you. And it happens differently in everyone's life. But for everyone who knows Christ, they have been called. Maybe, maybe even now you sense God calling you to himself in your heart you just feel him working in you why won't you come to me i will forgive you he says because of the work of christ i will forgive you he calls those he saves oh friend if he's calling you now won't you respond to me even as even as i continue to preach won't you respond to him and say yes god i believe i surrender everything to christ he is one who calls But what's interesting is that when he calls, he goes on to make demands in our life. He doesn't let us stay where we are. So yes, Jesus accepts sinners, but he never, he never leaves them in their sin. As we see, secondly, Jesus demands. Look in verse 28. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. I just think this is astonishing. I mean, you notice he just get, Luke doesn't say he just leaving, he rose and followed him. Leaving what? Everything. He, he left everything. He, he doesn't close the books or lock up the register or collect the receipts. Right? He doesn't put closed on the door and lock the door behind him. He just gets up his chair and he leaves everything and follows him. And much like, remember Peter earlier in Luke 5, left everything, that catch of the fish. But I think Matthew or Levi's following of Jesus is even more radical because you don't understand, though Peter could return to fishing, the, uh, Levi can't return to his job. 
I mean, someone else is going to take that position. That tax booth is going to be filled the next day. And if this whole Jesus thing doesn't work out, right? If, if pursuing Jesus and following Jesus is, is not what he wants, what does he have to go back to? You think Rome's going to hire him again? Oh, I don't think so. You think anyone else wants to hire the former tax collector? No, he is sacrificing everything. His safety, his security, his money. Why? Well, Luke tells us. To follow him. Perhaps I read too much into the text, but I could almost hear him singing. I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. He's all in. Because Jesus not only calls him, Jesus demands from him. You see, Levi cannot remain where he is and still follow Christ. He cannot love money and love Jesus. And there is a time in everyone's life where we have to leave the past behind. We have to break from the sin. And there is a new person being formed. And, and I'm, I'm going after Jesus. I'm going to follow him. And Jesus calls for him to follow me. You have to come, Levi. If you want to be, answer my call, you must come to me. And I want you to understand, Jesus does not make this choice easy. He's not, I mean, sometimes when we invite people to Christ, we want to make it as easy as we possibly can. Jesus never does that. He lays it all out in the line. If you come and follow me, I want you to understand you have to leave it all behind. It's not just here that he does this, it's throughout his word. You look in Luke chapter 11, I believe it is, and he won't let the person bury the dead. He says, no, you have to come now, or you... Luke in Luke chapter 14, he says, you need to hate your mother and father if you were to come and to love me. In, in Luke chapter 9, even perhaps you, you know this verse, he says, if anyone would come after me, he must what? Deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. He makes demands on our lives. Years ago, I was in the country of Azerbaijan, which is just north of Iran, and I was ministering amongst a small people group, maybe about a million. And we knew of about a hundred Christians amongst this Muslim people group. And there was this one woman who had recently professed faith in Christ. And yet the, the church there, the, these individuals wanted to meet with her for the purpose of determining whether she's truly following Christ. And so they met with this woman in secrecy. They wouldn't even let the missionary who we were working with uh, come to that meeting. And they spent about four hours with her. And when they emerged, uh, the missionary asked the Christians, he said, well, what do you think? Is she, is she a believer? Is she following Jesus? And their conclusion was, we don't know. But we'll find out if she tells her husband. And that, that's how they understood Christianity in that persecuted context. Are you going to keep this a secret? Is it just you and Jesus? Are you going to sacrifice? Are you going to tell your Muslim husband that you now belong to Christ? Will you actually follow him? Now, I'm not sure if that's what we should do, but I think it goes to the point that perhaps these people understand a lot better than we do the sacrifice which Jesus calls for us to make on our lives. Levi leaves everything. And so I asked a moment ago, has God called you? My question now perhaps is, have you answered? 
You know you answered evidently if you rise and follow him. You pursue him. You know you answer if your life is no longer about what you want and and what you desire, but it's about what he wants and what he desires. If you answer Jesus' call, it means you're no longer in control of your life, that Jesus now is in control. It's almost like a doctor being on call, if I could use that metaphor. I don't know if you ever had dinner with a doctor who's on call. And Back in the day, they used to wear the pager, right? And you'd be eating dinner and the pager would go off and, and he would get up and he would call the hospital and the hospital would say, we need you right now. And what did he do? Did he go back and finish his meal? Right? Did he help with dishes? No, he just off he went as quickly as he possibly could. He, a doctor on call is no longer in control of his life. Someone else is. Well, if you've answered Jesus' call, you, likewise, you are no longer in control of your life. Jesus is. He says, you come and follow me, and, and wherever I go, you're, you're to come with me. And I, in fact, I appreciate this, that Jesus doesn't say, I want you to come and, and do this, or follow that, or don't do this, or avoid this, or keep these commandments. He invites us into a relationship with him. He says, follow me. In fact, the real Jesus, you understand, is, and we'll see this in our study of Gospel of Luke, that he's always talking about himself. Jesus is, has this radical self-centeredness to himself. Right? You, you remember that story when, when Paul's on the road to Damascus and Paul's killing Christians, right? And, and he's just ravaging the church and Jesus shows up and says, Paul, why are you persecuting me? Right? Well, he wasn't persecuting Jesus. Jesus is in heaven. And yet Jesus so closely identifies with the church that he says it's, it's against me. Right? Before Abraham I was. I and the Father are one. No one comes to the Father except through me. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall never hunger. I am the light of the world. No man knows the Father except the Son. And to those whom the Son chooses to reveal, you must hate your father and mother and love me. You must take up your cross and follow me. There's a radical self-centeredness of Jesus. If we answer his call, life becomes about him. All about him. That's what this text is teaching us. And, and by the way, don't think, well, okay, if I answer this call, then it's, then it's duty, right? Okay, uh, life is about Jesus. I guess I have to do this, right? I hate what he's asking, but I'll do it anyways because my life is now about him. It's, no, 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 our hearts have been won by him. He has captured us with his sacrifice and his love for us. And because of what we have seen, he has done for us because of the mercy and grace which he has given to us, which cost him everything. We become, have a joyful obedience, right? A passionate submission to him. It's not duty-bound obedience. It is joyful obedience because he's won our hearts. I don't know if you've ever read the, the books, the, the Lord of the Rings series by uh, J.R. Tolkien. Um, but there's these beautiful pictures, uh, Christian imagery there. And there's this one scene when uh, Mary, who's uh, one of these hobbit fellows, right? These short guys with big feet. And, and Mary has, has sworn himself to protect his king. Well, this, this, this evil, towering witch king comes against Mary's king and, and he casts down his king and he throws him to the ground. And it was Mary's job to defend his king. And his king is now blind and he's wounded and, and he's dying. But poor little Mary, he's just terrified. And, and he's cowering in the corner. And, and he, he's, I'm not sure I can make the sacrifice to stand between this witch and my king. And suddenly a, a woman appears. And she draws a sword. And she stands in between the the witch and the king. And and the witch says to to her, this witch king, if you will not move out of the way, not only will I kill you, you will die in terrible torment. 
And she draws her sword and says, do what you will. But if you take one step closer, I will smite thee. Well, what does he do? He takes a step closer. And he starts coming down upon this woman. And he's crushing her. And he's killing her. And Mary's over there cowering in the corner. And he sees her courage. And he begins to think, if she could stand up, if she could make this sacrifice, I can too. And Mary comes out of the corner and he leaps upon this evil king and together they defeat him. And I think it's a beautiful picture that that death is after us. Judgment is after us. And Jesus stands before death and you and says, touch him and die. And what does death do? Well, it comes down upon Jesus and starts to crush Jesus, doesn't it? And we're like Mary hiding in the corner filled with terror and fear. And it's only when we look upon our Lord to see what he is doing, to see that he is protecting us, to see that he is taking death upon us, that we become strengthened. And we think if he is willing to do this for us, then I will do whatever he calls I will obey whatever he demands. If he's willing to lose his life for me, I will lose my life for him. And that's what it means to answer this call. It means to lose your life for him. It's about Jesus now. He has gone to the cross and borne our sin there and rose from the dead to show us the life that we are to live, to encourage us to love him and to obey him. See, if you answer the call, everything becomes second. Everything. It's not once I believe, once I I didn't believe, now I do. It's Christ is everything to me. This is what Levi evidently understood. He got up and followed him. In fact, you notice it's not grim resignation. It's not, okay, I have to. It's not, all right, uh, uh, well, this is my way to eternal life. I'm going to save my own skin. I don't want to do this, but I'm going to do it anyways. The first thing Levi does is he throws a party. Look at verse 29. And Levi made a great feast in his house, and there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at the table with him. So if following Jesus is this joyless self-denial, someone forgot to tell Levi. Right? Jesus says, I'm following Jesus. Let's have a party. A great feast, Luke says. An occasion for laughter and merriment and, and joy. I, I, in fact, I think coming to Jesus is a good reason for a party. Don't you think? And we have parties for all sorts of silly reasons, I think. It's the new year, right? All right, let's throw a party or whatever it is. I think you come to Christ, you ought to throw a party, right? You want a very quick application here. You follow Jesus. You bow your knee to Jesus today. Let's have a party at your house, okay? Right? It's just not a, he comes to Christ and says, you know what? I don't know what else to do except to have a party. I, I get saved. I'm going to praise him. And in fact, the more I read the Bible, the more I realize that God really likes parties. Uh, you, you have Jesus' first miracles at a wedding, right? Soon we'll see him at Simon the Pharisee's house. They're at a dinner party being anointed by a woman. You know, he raises Lazarus from the dead. You know what they do immediately? They have a banquet. You remember his parables that he teaches? How many of them are about banquets and feasts and even the greatest banquet? And every seat in my house will be filled at my party. We read about the wedding feast of the Lamb. We're told that many will come from the east and west and recline with Abraham at my table. In fact, the more I think we read the Bible, the more we should conclude we need more parties. We need more celebration. 
Right? And in fact, Levi's having his party here. But you know what else is going on? There's actually two parties here. You don't see it in the text. You'll see it a little bit later in Luke's gospel. So Levi's having his party. Turn over to Luke 15 for a second. Let me show you. There's actually another party going on during Levi's party. In Luke 15, there's actually three parties in this uh, wonderful passage in Scripture. But I'm going to show you one. Luke 15, this is a story about a man who lost his sheep. We pick it up in verse 5 of Luke 15. And when he found it, so he found his sheep. What does he do? He lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And okay, so not only is he happy about it. No, verse 6. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. He throws a party because his sheep is home. And verse 7 applies it just so I tell you there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. When Levi throws his party, God throws a party in heaven rejoicing that his lost sheep has been found. He has repented. He has come home. God celebrates repentance. He celebrates salvation. And so does Levi. He has this party. And we notice who's there. A large company of tax collectors. Many, many tax collectors and others. He says in verse 29, later they'll be identified as sinners. And so it seems to me Levi follows Jesus and he immediately wants other people to do the same. I wonder if this is his resignation dinner. He gathers all his tax collector buddies together and says, hey, I want you to know I'm, I'm quitting. I, I'm done. As of today, I'm done. And, and the reason why is this fellow right here. And, and I'd like you to meet him too. His name is Jesus. I, I wonder if he's bringing his friends to learn about Jesus. This seems like a natural thing to do, doesn't it? We meet Jesus. We find mercy. We want others to do the same. Andrew found Jesus, and soon after he went to Peter, we found the Messiah. Come and meet him. The Samaritan spent an a- Samaritan woman spent an afternoon with Jesus, and she went back to her village. Come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Christ? Levi knew his friends' needs, and it maybe if they heard Jesus, they would follow Jesus too. And so I trust the courses were served, and the cups were refilled, and the lamps burnt low, and Jesus spoke, and Levi just grinning from ear to ear what God has done in his life. Are you like Levi in this, or Andrew? Or the Samaritan woman. It's your commitment to follow Jesus, just not a commitment to follow him, but a desire to invite other people to do so as well. I wonder, when, when's the last time you've been like Levi and had non-Christians over to your house for dinner? Just, just simple, simply, when, when's the last time you've had someone who doesn't know Jesus, maybe outside your family, and you had them over for dinner? Or even when's the last time, not even you did that, when's the last time you actually invited someone, whether they came or not? So I'll tell you, these people aren't going to church, right? They're not coming here on Sunday morning, most likely. Right? But they'll go to your house, right? And it's in our house and we're at our table that barriers come down, don't they? And we develop friendships and there's something personal and relational about sitting around someone's table. He opens his house. And I know opening a house is, is inconvenient, isn't it? And it's expensive. And yet somehow I think we got in our mind that our homes are supposed to be these little functional heavens until the real heaven comes. Right, we'll just create like little little heaven outposts, and I understand that that tendency, and I, I want some of that in my house as well. But there's we have to balance it, don't we, with a desire to do ministry in our homes that that, that we 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 practice hospitality in our homes. So let me just give you a very simple application. 
This week, invite someone who doesn't know Jesus over to dinner. Okay? And, and I'm, not tell, I'm not saying they have to come. Just say, hey, would you like to come? I'm not saying you have to even talk about Jesus. Just be friends. Just love them. Enjoy yourself. Eat. Right? Have a good time. Build relationships. And, and maybe you could say, you know, our family, we believe God answers prayer. And, and you know, maybe on their way out. Is there, is there anything we could be in prayer for you? Maybe just this simple, just little seed as you seek to develop relationships with non-believers. I think we're to seek the lost, don't you? Seems like what Jesus is doing. It's my, my prayer that's become part of Hamilton Baptist Church's culture. It's the elders' prayer. We've been talking about this. How can we become more outreach-focused? How can we pursue the lost so Christ can save them? Levi's doing so. He throws this party, which I think would be a good place to end this story, wouldn't it? But kind of what's a party without Pharisees, right? And so uh, they're, they're going to show up. And so we'll conclude with point three. Jesus be friends. Jesus be friends. No, verse 30, everybody's not pleased with what Jesus is doing. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at Jesus saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Well, I imagine a very simple answer to that question is these are the only people Levi knows, right? And so he invites who he knows. And he, of course, they need Jesus. And so there's tax collectors and sinners at this dinner. So just to kind of put it into common day language, it would be like a party with uh, prostitutes and um, I don't, maybe uh, illegal immigrants, transgender people would be there, people with anger issues, maybe uh, released convicts would be there. That's the type of party Jesus is at. He's at a party with outcasts. He's at a party with the despised people and the rejected people and the alienated people. And the Pharisees show up. Remember we saw them last time. They got upset with Jesus for giving sin. And now they're upset once again. These are experts in the law, by the way. They're morally upright individuals. They are, um, in this day, the religious conservatives. Everyone admired them. Everybody thought highly of them except Jesus. Um, in fact, I, I think the feeling's mutual. They don't like Jesus much either. And they're upset because he's eating with people that he's not supposed to be with. He should be, in other words, he should be eating with us, right? You're a rabbi. We're the religious leaders. Why don't you pay us some attention? The Pharisees would, would avoid sinners. Jesus would eat with them. The Pharisees would quarantine themselves from sinners. Jesus would seek to recover sinners. And this infuriated them. By the way, just as a footnote, beware of anyone who wants you to be more holy than Jesus. Right? There are plenty of people who say, don't do this, don't do that, and we see Jesus doing that. If anybody says you can't do what Jesus did, just, just ignore them. Right? And Jesus clearly thinks this is okay. And, and, and they don't, obviously. They're very upset with this. In fact, I wonder how they even know that he's doing this. They're certainly not at the party. They would never enter that house. But you wonder if there's just a group of them staring through the window. Or hanging back at the street waiting for the party to end. And as soon as Jesus and his disciples emerge, they begin to rebuke them. It's almost like the, the older brother in the story of the prodigal son. When everybody's at the party celebrating, he's hanging outside wondering, why is why, I've done everything right. Why are you celebrating with them? And so they, they rebuke Jesus' disciples. But Jesus can speak for himself as we see in verse 31. And Jesus answered them. Those who are well have no need of a physician. But those who are sick... I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. I think this is where the story's been headed all along. 
This is one of the great mission statements that Jesus gives us. It not only tells us who Jesus is, but it tells us what he's come to do. He hasn't come to save righteous people. He's come to save those who know they need me. I'm here to save those who understand that they are not righteous. I'm here to save the messed up and the law-breaking and the proud and the scared and the angry and the confused and the hopeless. That's who I'm here to help. And he uses this proverb, this common sense proverb, doctors help sick people. You want to know why I'm with sinners? I'm with them because they need my help. Now notice he doesn't deny that they're sick. He doesn't minimize their sin. We do this. Someone's a thief, well, they must have had a hard life. Or someone's abusive, well, they must have learned that from their dad. Someone's a drunk, well, it must be in their genes. Someone's lazy, well, they learned that from their parents. But Jesus doesn't excuse their sin. He doesn't blame others, doesn't deny it, doesn't minimize it. He says, I'm going to cure it. I'm going to fix it. I'm going to spend time with them in order to transform their lives. You want to know why I'm with them? Well, doctors spend time with sick people in order to cure them. And I think when Jesus teaches us this, he, he corrects some errors that we might have in our hearts in 21st century American Christianity. Because we have this tendency, and when you think about it, you, you read, watch the news, and you read the newspaper, and you see the direction that our country is going, and our culture is going, and it is not, not going towards Christ, in case you're not aware. It is going an increasingly accelerated pace away from what we would consider Christian morality, right? I mean, almost like the foot is on the gas pedal, and we are amazed at the rate of change in which this country is headed. And we have some options before us, and many times what we do when we see this is we get mad, and we shake our fists, and we yell and scream and say, how dare you do this to our country? The other reaction is quite the opposite. We retreat. And we say, well, if that's the way the world's going to go, well, we're just going to hide back here. We're going to circle the wagons and we're going to keep ourselves within our four walls and stay away from the world as much as we can. And I think perhaps that's our great danger. Right? We do this, don't we? American Christianity. We, we homeschool, right? And by the way, I homeschool. So I'm not saying don't homeschool, no. but I'm saying there are dangers in these decisions. Listen, we... We, uh, we create um, Christian coffee shops, right? Because we certainly don't want to drink, get coffee from a non-Christian, right? We, we like Christian doctors, right? Isn't that great if you're a doctor oh, or if you're a dentist or a Christian chiropractor? And we go to Christian stores and we create Christian sports leagues, right? Because we'll just have our kids play with non-Christians, right? This is what we do. And I'm, in no way am I saying we shouldn't do any one of these things or all of them. But I am saying beware as to why you're doing them. Because if you're trying to run away from the world, you're going the exact opposite direction that Jesus is going. Jesus doesn't hate the world. Jesus doesn't retreat from the world. Jesus loves the world. God loves the world. For God so loved the world and all of its sinners that he gave his only begotten son. Is that not what we should be doing? Not creating little holy huddles, right? We're just going to befriend people like us. We need to be like Christ and seek after the lost and spend time with them. And sometimes our churches can be so filled with programs that we have so much going on that you don't even have time to invest in those relationships. So just hear me very clearly. I do not want you to come to this building every time the doors are open. 
And every time there's a program, you'll be here all the time. And I'm, uh, do not, please do not do that. Go and be with the world. Develop those relationships. And find what ministries you enjoy. But there are people who we need to meet. And so Jesus, I think, corrects this. He helps us see perhaps some errors in our own life. Another thing that he corrects is that this idea that we need to fix our life and then come to God. Right? You need to take care of your sin. It's almost like the Pharisees are saying, let them repent and then come to you, Jesus. You know, it would be like saying, I need to get healthy and then go to the doctor. And Jesus says, that's ludicrous. It's insane. I'm here to help sinful people. In working on this sermon, I came across a story from long ago of a woman who lived in England, an English woman, and she married a Chinese man. And a couple hundred years ago, that was not something you did. It was very much looked down upon, and she had what they called at that time a half-caste baby, a biracial baby, a terrible and awful term. Well, this lady heard of a woman's Bible study and she went and she brought this baby and man, she loved that Bible study and she came back week after week and was learning so much and after a couple of months, the pastor approached her and said, ma'am, I do not want you to return. And there was confusion on her face and sadness there as well. He kind of answered the expression she had and said, if you keep coming, these other women will never come back to this church. And her eyes filled with tears And she said, I know I'm a sinner, but isn't there any place a sinner can go? I'll tell you, if she lived in Jesus' day, there was a place. It was called Jesus. She could go to Jesus. And please understand that we don't fix our life to come to Christ. In fact, you notice verse 32, what Christ is going to do in us. He says, I have not come to call the righteous, but I'm going to call sinners. Sinners to what? Sinners to repentance. I'm going to call them to, to, to be like me because I love them. See, if you think you're righteous, you'll, you'll never come to Jesus. Just like if you think you're healthy, you'll never go to the doctor. You only go to the doctor when you know you're sick and, and you need help. It, it, and it's the sick people who, who recognize this. And it is the sinful people who recognize they need Christ. I tell you, what Jesus teaches over and over again is all you need is your need. All you need is desperation. All you need is to come to the only one who can heal you. The only one who can cure you. This is a warning for the Pharisees who think they're righteous. They're really not. Jesus would save them as well. In fact, he saves one man named Nicodemus and another named Joseph, both Pharisees, because they grow to understand their need. Jesus says, I can't do anything for anyone who doesn't understand their sinful. These tax collectors, these sinners have no illusions. They understand they're sinful. In fact, they probably thought their sin was terminal, right? Their sickness was terminal. Well, there's nothing we can do for us, so let's just party and have a good time. And Jesus shows up and says, I'm a very good doctor, and I could heal anyone. He could cure them. That cure is often called salvation, a relationship with Christ. He's come to bring us to repentance. He's come to change our hearts. He loves sinners, but he never leaves them where they are. He calls them into this relationship. I call them into repentance. Maybe by his grace, he's calling you even now. I wonder if there's someone here which God is just calling right now. You feel it in your heart. Come to me, he's saying. Come to me. I love you. I love you just the way you are. We're going to change you. He says, I'm going to change you, but don't fix your life before you come to me. 
bow your knee to me. Maybe he's telling you, I'm your maker. I'm your savior. I will transform you through grace. But you must surrender your life to him. You know, the Bible tells us that if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead, we will be saved. Save you right now, friend. He'll do that because he loves you and he's full of grace. In fact, why don't we all bow our heads for a moment? I wonder if there's somebody here who just wants this service to end and wants to stop thinking about the things they're thinking about. I think that's God working on you, friend. I think that's God calling you to himself. I'm not sure when he'll do it again. Nor am I sure why you would turn away from a God who all he wants to do is offer you grace and mercy as he gives you hope and love. So if you want to respond to God, I'm going to pray a prayer. And I just ask you to pray that prayer in your heart after me. Just silently to your Lord if you mean it. God, I hear you calling me. And I believe that Jesus is the Son of God. I believe he lived a perfect life. And I believe he died on the cross to pay for all my sin. I believe he rose from the dead and one day will return. And right now, my God, I bow my knee to King Jesus and I give him my life. Save me. Forgive me. Make me yours today and forevermore. I pray in Christ's name. We're going to sing a song.